Do keep your finger in Romans chapter 5. Um, we're going to base uh, most of our thoughts here in these uh, few verses. But we're starting a new four-week series today, as you've heard. Um, and we've called this series A New Life. Um, and although we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, um, if you would like a Bible verse that would sum up this new series that we're going to look at, if, you, if you've got your finger on the page there, just look at chapter 6. And uh, where are we? Have I, have I written the wrong... Oh, yeah, chapter 6, verse 4. I thought I'd written down 24 there. Um, the, chapter 6, verse 4 says, We were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Does this work? No. I'm going to bin that, Josh, so you're on red alert now. Um, there you go. That, it, that, that verse, essentially, is the verse that we've taken this series title from. And note, note the way that Paul presents this as a life to be lived, that you may live a new life. For Paul, this is not a spectator sport. This new life is not something to put on a shelf and admire it from afar. This new life, Paul speaks of, is for living by all of us, that we may live a new life. So you'll see on the program there, my, my first question is, what, what does it mean that, what do we mean, what does Paul mean by this phrase, a new life? What do we mean to live a new life? I just want to be clear on one thing that this isn't. And by contrast, hopefully, we'll see what it is. A few years ago, um, I stumbled across an article online. I'm going to emphasize that in a minute. I stumbled across an article online that essentially gave you a step-by-step -step guide as to how to disappear and start a new life. I emphasized the stumbling because... I was in a dark place looking to disappear and not show up one day and start a new life somewhere else. Jane can vouch for that. So this was very definitely a stumble. But in this article, I think there were 20 steps to how you could like basically become anonymous. What might some of the reasons be for someone to want to disappear and start a new life? There was a story a few years ago of a couple called John and Anne Darwin. They lived in the northeast. I, th I think he was from Hartlepool. I think they lived in Darlington in the northeast. They got into a lot of debt and they came up with a plan to fake John's, the husband's death, in a canoeing accident. And they pushed the canoe out into the sea and uh, the wreckage was later found. The authorities couldn't understand because the sea was pretty calm at the time and they, they, they weren't sure how he'd got into difficulties. But their insurance paid off their mortgage and gave them quite a bit of cash to settle their debts. And to begin with, this guy, John Darwin, lived in the next door house and would secretly visit his wife. And, um, and their two sons didn't know. They, they grieved for their dad. But eventually they tried to move and start a new life in Panama, 
But when they tried to buy some property in Panama, they tried to buy apparently a ranch that was £200,000. And uh, the authorities wanted to verify John's identity. He, he was going under the false name John Jones. He, I don't know if he had a lot of imagination. But um, the, when they realised that the police would verify his identity, they decided that John would come back to the UK, go into a police station and claim that he'd had amnesia so he, he, to, to get out of this predicament. So their, their, their deceit and, and lies and then lies to get out of it was, was phenomenal. They ended up going to jail and, and having to pay back a lot of money that they'd frauded. So some people might want to start a new life because of debt. Other reasons might be that they're bored with their life. I just want a more exciting one somewhere else. Maybe someone might want to start a new life because... They have regrets. Maybe someone might want to start a new life because there are elements of their circumstances or life that are very hard and they just wish they could stop and get off and start again somewhere else. I think the assumption here is that if we could just change our external circumstances, then our life would be new and therefore better. And the problem with that, of course, is that we ourselves haven't changed. Even if we move to a new place, we still take ourselves and all that that means to that new place. That couple tried to create a new life in South America, but they were essentially still the same people at heart. When the Bible speaks of new life, I, I, I want to suggest to you that it's not talking about a superficial external change. The Bible, when it speaks of new life, is talking about a very deep and radical change internally. This is one of the most important things, I think, to realise about the Christian message. The Christian gospel does not offer us a kind of superficial add-on to our existing lives. Uh, I, I just had a couple of slides here, Josh, you'll have to flick through these for us. I, I think the Christian gospel is unlike any other system of thought, because essentially, at the same time, what the gospel says to us is profoundly realistic and staggeringly optimistic at the same time. I don't think any other system of philosophy or thought does that in quite the same way that the gospel does. And what I mean by that, uh, un under the heading of realistic, is that God gives us a staggeringly accurate, honest, searingly accurate diagnosis of what our true human nature is really like and yet at the same time he gives us a glorious solution to that spiritual need the christian gospel does both of these things at the same time i, I think it's true that we can often be very sensitive to this often when people hear the message of christianity sometimes i've talked to people 
I've talked to people, some of you here who've become Christians, and often the first reaction on hearing the Christian gospel is, but I'm not a sinner. The, the, The reaction is one of being defensive and we're sensitive, aren't we, to criticism. But God is more like a good doctor than some kind of bully. If we have ears to hear the gospel, God's truthful diagnosis of our human condition is not designed to crush us. It's designed to point us to the hope that is found in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. So Paul, who wrote Romans, can say this in another place. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This isn't moving house. This is about a heart that has been changed radically and internally. The New Testament, I think, is very striking in the way it talks about this radical change. There are all kinds of simple metaphors in the New Testament. We we, we hear of those who were in the dark coming into the light. We hear of those who were guilty being forgiven. We hear of those who were far away being brought near. We hear of those who were blind now being able to see. We hear of those being described as rebels now being transformed into worshippers. And so it goes on. In fact, if we look again at that verse in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul connects the old and the new with the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. His, His logic is, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. As we go through this series, I I, I want you to get a sense of how radical and transformative the good news of the gospel really is. It isn't a plaster that covers over external things. The, The gospel is about being a new creation. So over the next four weeks, we're going to think, Ewan already said this at the beginning, There's a slide here, four very simple metaphors that the Bible uses. Um, Josh, let's flick on. There you go, standing, walking, fighting, and running. And again, we'll see standing. Today we're thinking about a new identity, walking, a new relationship, fighting, a new purpose, and running, a new destiny. Four, we, we could maybe use others. I shared this um, with Luke uh, before he went back to America, and Luke said we should add the one resting. So I don't know whether that was because he wanted to have a rest. But um, standing, walking, fighting, running, and resting, maybe we could have five. You could maybe think of others. This is not an exhaustive list. But I I think the Bible's helpful in giving us these metaphors. So we're going to think about standing today. So here we go. I want to think about standing in this way. Our son, Sam, who's here today uh, and sitting down, not standing, is going to India this summer. 
He's wondering what I'm going to see. And uh, we've realised recently that his passport has run out. So he's not going to be going to India until we've got a new passport for him. We've still got time. We do need to get onto it soon, though. Um, and when, when you get a new passport, you have to find someone in the community. The form basically says you have to get someone to countersign it and they've got to be a person in the community of good standing. You, you can't just, like, have anyone signing these forms. They've got to be someone in the community who is of good standing. It gives a suggested little list um, of the kind of people that that means. So when I look this up in the dictionary, this kind of standing, it describes it as position, status, or reputation. That's what I mean by the idea of standing. There's a couple of things to just note about this before we get into Romans 5. Uh, so let's... Um, here we go. First of all, this is about the approval of others. If, if I'm trying to be in with a group of friends, for example, there might be certain things in the group that are expected that I'd have to be or to do in order to gain their respect. So my standing with my friends or my acceptance by them will depend on me living up to certain standards and things that to gain their approval. Uh, secondly, on the other hand, this idea can point to something else, I think, that's more something in us, that is really about confidence. I think this phrase, this, this idea of standing, calls to mind something about not apologising or kind of scraping and bowing into the room or hiding in the shadows because we feel somehow unworthy or disliked or disapproved of, standing implies, by definition, confidence. I'm secure. I'm loved. I'm approved of. I can, I can lift up my head. I can stand. I'm, I'm not curling up in the corner like a hedgehog. There's, there's, so there's approval of others in this, but there's something about confidence as well internally. I want to explore this idea with you in relation to God. The great King David in the Old Testament wrote many psalms. And in one psalm, he asks this question. Who may stand in God's holy place? find that in Psalm 24. In other words, David, a man who knew God and loved God, was asking, how, how can I come near to God and stand up and lift up my head with no shame? How can I know that God loves me and approves of me? So that, that's our question today, essentially. How can I be of good standing before God? So let's turn our attention to Romans chapter 5. We have three uh, simple uh, things to look at. Let's just read verses 1 and 2 again. And hopefully this time, if you didn't already, we'll pick up the reference 
to standing here. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that great can opener that Claire referred to, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast or rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's so much packed into a few words here. I think it should be clear to us that a change in status is going on here. The people Paul's speaking about here includes himself in this. He says, we, we together, corporately, we have peace with God. There's a sense of people on the outside being brought inside to stand in a new environment, to breathe new air. Uh, there's a sense here of this being wonderfully secure because it doesn't sound like there are degrees of being in. You can't be a bit in or less in than you once were in. It appears that whoever is in is just as much in as everyone else who is in. There's something secure in this. There's no hint here of scraping or apologizing or bowing in. There's a note of joy. There's a picture here of standing up with confidence and joy and gladness. So I want to just highlight three things uh, quickly here that Paul hints at. First of all, you'll set on the program there. This standing requires an introduction. The thing that's really striking, I think, the, the beginning of verse 2, is, is this idea of gaining access. The, the idea of access. The, the Greek word that's translated in our English as gaining access is a word that's made up of two parts. One of them means to be brought near. And the other part of the word means face-to-face. So the the word actually conveys something of being brought face-to-face with someone else. We we might use the idea of being introduced. Someone is like bringing us to introduce us to someone. So the idea here is that we have access because someone else is bringing us in. You get that? Paul's very explicit here that we have gained this access into a new standing through Jesus. And notice how Paul gives him his full title. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that you lived in an old city long ago. And, uh, and, you, and you were poor. And in this city, there's a great castle And as you look in through the gaps in the wall, you can see the lights, you can smell the good food, and you can feel the warmth and hear the songs, and you're you're on the outside, cold, in the street. 
Imagine you knocked on the door. Please, Mr. Man on the door, please let me in. And the man looks at you with a look that says, no, you can't come in here. But then imagine that the son of the king who lives in the castle and who owns the city notices you through the window. And he comes down and out of the castle into the street and he takes your hand and he leads you into the cat. This time, you don't even need to stop at security. Come on, sir. The reason you can come in and the reason you can stand up is because you've been brought in by none other than the son of the king himself. Do you see what a difference that makes? Who can send you outside if the prince has brought you in? This uh, idea of access is a very important, central idea in the Bible. When human beings rebelled against essentially the goodness of God, the creator in the Garden of Eden, we're told that God put them outside of the garden and then placed a flaming guard on the entrance, if you like, to stop them getting back in to the garden where they had been. God is teaching them and teaching us something here about access. And the message is clear that they they sinned against God and therefore found themselves on the outside of the presence of God with no way of getting back inside. This theme runs all the way through the Bible There's various occasions in the Old Testament where God tells his people to build what are essentially worship centers. In the beginning, there was a mobile one called a tabernacle. Later on, they built a more permanent temple in Jerusalem. And every time God gave his people instructions to build this temple, he gave them clear instructions to make a a special room, an inner room in the middle, and to hang a curtain in the middle of it. And it was only the designated priest who could go through the curtain into the presence of God. And he could only do that on one day, a certain day. All of this history in the Old Testament is designed by God to teach us in picture language that our sin separates us from a holy God. There's a barrier to be overcome if we're going to have if we're going to gain access. There's a barrier to overcome. The, this this is what you might call the hard diagnosis part. We're not worthy in ourselves to come face to face with our Maker, but in all this history, there's hope of a solution because what God is pointing to is the fact that 
someone would come who would open the door. Wow. That's timely. <laughs> someone would come who would open the door. Now, when, when we get to New Testament, in Mark's Gospel, something very significant happened when Jesus died. In the temple in Jerusalem, there was also a massive curtain. And in the Gospel of Mark, we're told that as Jesus died, it was as if a giant hand miraculously reached down and ripped the curtain in two from the top to the bottom. It was as if God was saying, you can come in now. Access is granted. The death of Jesus has somehow made it possible for us to have access into God's presence. So that's the first thing. Paul, Paul hints at it here. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Let's think secondly about this as well. Standing is the result of true peace. Paul speaks here at the beginning of Romans 5 about us having peace with God. I want you to think about this. The truth is that we need this before any other blessing that we might want to enjoy. It would actually be no good to us if we had all the other blessings we could imagine if we didn't have this. If we had everything else but we didn't have peace with God, it wouldn't do us any good. And Paul's telling us here the reason that we can stand up is because we have peace with God. Paul connects this peace with a very important biblical word, the word justified. Stay in verse one. This is how he begins this chapter. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. That's the connection. Our justification leads to peace. This, is, this word justification is also a word, isn't it, about approval. When you justify something, what you're saying is, this is a good thing. We approve of it. We're, we're, we're justifying it. And the problem for us here, spiritually, is that when God looks at us, when God, in a sense, weighs up our lives and makes a value judgment on us, we've all fallen short. <laughs> Every one of us, Paul says this in Romans a little bit earlier than this chapter, we've all fallen short. It conjures up perhaps the imagery of a courtroom. And I suppose if we can imagine God being the judge and assessing the evidence, God wouldn't be able, having assessed the evidence, to justify us or acquit us. God would have to pronounce us guilty, not, not guilty. This is the ultimate root of our lack of peace. 
And I, I, I think deep down in our hearts, all of us know something of this conscience. I, I, I can remember, even as a child, asking my dad if the good things I did would outweigh the bad things to tip the scales in my favour. Even as a child, that sense of, I don't know, not, not being approved is, is there. To have peace with God is for everything to be right between us and God. It means on God's side that his righteous displeasure with us because of our sin has somehow been turned away. And I think on our side it means something as well. On our side it means that the deep fear we have of not being approved is also taken away. This peace with God means that my mind can be completely at ease because I know that God looks on me with favour and love. At the end of this little section that you and read in verse 11, Paul uses a different word, a relational word, the word reconciliation. In these stunning words, Paul says that we can have peace with God because we've been justified by God. And this surely raises one of the most important questions that we can ever ask. How is it even possible? How can God justify <coughs> fallen, sinful humans? In other words, how can God look at my life, our lives, and say, that's perfect? How can, how can the great and true judge in the highest court look on us and smile and say, not guilty, so that we're not condemned? How can God be truthful and uphold his justice while at the same time expressing his love and compassion and kindness. How can we know peace and stand up in God's presence? That was David's question. Paul's answer here is that our gracious father sent his great son into this world to achieve two crucially important things, one of them through his life and the other through his death. First of all, Jesus lived a life that was perfectly good in every way. He never fell short. He never failed to live up to God's righteousness there is no blot or blemish or stain or defect at all in him I, I, I want you to get how utterly unique 
Jesus is in this. We have all fallen short except one. The Lord Jesus. But then secondly, he was crucified unjustly. Greatest miscarriage of justice that's ever happened. The most innocent man who ever lived, cruelly sentenced to death. We've been thinking about courtrooms a little here. It's very interesting to me that in God's court, when God's the judge, it's humans who would have to be declared guilty. But in human courts, God gets put on trial and humans declare that he's guilty and send him out to die like a common criminal. Interesting irony. But while men were plotting against God, God was actually overruling their wickedness and doing something glorious that he had planned long beforehand. God was offering up his own perfect son to take the punishment that we sinners deserve. If you just look further down with me in chapter 5 here, Paul references this very beautifully. Look at verse 6. Paul says there, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless or helpless, Christ died. Who for? For the ungodly. Verse 7 is interesting. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. The thought that when, it, when Paul says a righteous person, he's talking essentially about someone who has kept all the rules and there's maybe a bit of a job's worth. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're squeaky clean. But when he says good person, he's talking about someone who is good on the inside. So someone very rarely will anyone die for a job's worth. But for someone who's really quite good and likable, someone might lay down their life. But then he says in verse 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a comparison Paul makes here. Down through the centuries, many Christians have likened what's going on here to a great swap taking place in the sense that Christ comes into the world and takes on his shoulders our guilt but at the same time he gives to us the righteous life that he's lived it's almost like we exchange places we're, we're, we're given a new set of clothes to wear Another way that people have looked at this is, is thinking about your bank account. Imagine you were in debt, like John and Ann Darwin were. Imagine you were a million pounds in debt. What, what's happening here? Imagine that someone came over and said, I'll pay off the debt in the debit column and get you back to zero. That would be great. That would be fantastic on its own. But here God is doing more than that because what he's doing is also putting a million pounds in the credit column. We start off down here 
Christ pays for our sins and gives us his righteousness. This righteousness is not something that we have earned or do. This is a gift. The righteousness of another is given to us to clothe us. And what that means is that our standing with God is not up or down, in or out, based on how well or not we're doing or how good or not we're feeling. It's based on something far more objective than that. It's based on the perfect life and the saving death of the Lord Jesus. God, essentially, in his great love for us, treats his son as if he'd lived the life that we live, and treats us as if we had lived the life that his son has lived. It is a gift. Since we have been justified, declared righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Notice what, what does Paul say then that we must do to gain access into this new standing? Paul says that we're justified or made righteous through faith. And he says the same thing in verse 2. We've gained access by faith. So this standing is ours, not by us doing something, but by us believing something. This new status becomes ours the moment we trust in Jesus. Our righteousness. We must believe in Him. And that faith in Jesus, our righteousness, will lead you, will lead leads us to being made righteous and having peace with God and enables us to stand tall in His presence. Lastly, we need to be quick to wrap up, but let me just drill into this a little bit more under this final heading. Standing brings joyful security. I think Paul's really clear here, or, or really keen here, to establish the ongoing permanence of this new status. I'm, I'm, I'm not someone who's like, a Greek scholar, I, I just know which books to look at. Um, the tense here is interesting. Um, you know how languages have tenses. It's a long time since I did French at school. And I can just about get past, present and future. But in the original Greek language, there's a tense apparently, and it's called the perfect active indicative tense. Who knew? And this tense is a way of saying that something happened in the past at a particular point in time, but that that something has been continuing to be like that ever since. You get that idea? That's the tense Paul uses here. 
What Paul is conveying here is the idea that once upon a time we didn't have access. And then there came a point when we gained access and we've continued having that access ever since. You get that? This is a new position that is ongoing and permanent. There's nothing temporary. We're not on probation for three months like when you start a new job. We were once brought into this new state and we're still there now. And we always will be. Now, I'm not pointing that out just to be boring and technical or to show you that which Greek books to read. The reason I want to point that out is the same reason Paul wants to point it out, because it should make us glad and excited and full of hope. Look at the end of verse uh, 2. Paul says, We boast, some versions say, we rejoice or we glory we boast or rejoice, what in? In the hope of the glory of God. What on earth does that mean? It's an interesting phrase. This phrase is really about our prospects for the future. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's as if Paul starts to overflow with excitement as he grasps the idea that my status has changed. Just think for a moment about where I'm going. That's what Paul's saying here. We, a, a Christian believer has a new identity, and part of that is the anticipation. We human beings, essentially, have been created by God to see and admire and to be satisfied by the glory and beauty of God. And what happens when we see it is that we begin to reflect it because you become like what you love. Human beings are created to enjoy and reflect the glory of God. And the more we know him, the more we'll be like him. Our problem is that in our natural condition, we fall so far short of this. One writer I came across compared humanity to, to like a fluorescent tube that doesn't have any gas in it. You know it's meant to shine, but there's no gas in there. What Paul is saying here, when he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God... He is rejoicing in the fact that God is regassing his tube. He's rejoicing in the fact that God is causing him to be what he was made to be. It's begun now, it isn't finished yet. But that's where he's going. One day he will perfectly see and perfectly reflect the glory of God. Paul returns to this theme later on in chapter 8. Chapters 5 and 6 and 7 are almost a little interlude where Paul's dealing with objections. What happens when I sin? Why is life so hard? He, he, he kind of gets all of those objections out of the way. And then he gets to chapter 8. What does he say? Flick over the page with me. Chapter 8, verse 1. He gets to his conclusion. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's the same idea. Justification. Look at verse 18. 
Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Oh man, we, we, we could trace chapter 8. Paul says in verse 31, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What Paul's saying is, if the son brings you in, who can send you out? So the Christian life is a new life. It's not a new location. And this means, first of all, that we have a completely new identity in relation to God that depends on an introduction by Jesus. It leads to us being at peace with God and it fills us with joyful hope as we contemplate a glorious destiny. So often our culture tells us that we must pursue and create our own identity. But this is the other way around. Here is a new identity and status that is given to us for us to live our lives out of. Life is not intended to be earning our identity. Life is intended to be living out of a new identity given to us by our gracious Father. So often in my own life, and you'll appreciate this, we, we can be at the mercy of our feelings, whether they're up or down. We're often deeply affected by our circumstances, whether they're good or bad. I, I think this, this is understandable, isn't it? We need to be patient with ourselves sometimes and cut ourselves some slack. But these gospel truths are not dependent on how we feel. These gospel truths are not dependent on what our circumstances are doing. They, they, these truths depend more objectively on what God has done for us in Christ. Here is somewhere that we can stand and anchor our fragile lives. Paul here even goes as far as to say that he glories in his difficulties. He knows that his difficulties can't separate him from God's love. Actually, what they do is they prune his character. They produce courage and hope. And all the way through that, God, he says in verse 5, has been filling his heart with love through the Holy Spirit. There's something here to anchor our souls in. So let me ask you, are you standing Don't be a spiritual hedgehog curled inwards. Lift up your head and stand in the grace that God has brought you into through Christ. And may, maybe you're here today 
and you've never heard this before you've never understood what God has done for us in Christ maybe you've never really trusted in the Lord Jesus I hope you can bear the hard diagnosis and I hope that will lead you to marvel at the sheer wonder of what God has done through Jesus God calls you through his word here to repent and believe in his son so that you too can live a new life we're going to sing in a moment what I think will be a very appropriate song but um, let me just close by reading Romans one last time but this time from a paraphrase version of the Bible a few years ago an American uh, wrote sort of a, a version of the Bible called The Message and this, this is how he translated Romans chapter 5 in the first couple of verses by entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us set us right with him and make us fit for him we have it all together with God because of our master Jesus and that's not all we throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us. And we find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for the prospect, the glorious prospect of new life. Father, we thank you that no one cares for us like you do. We thank you that your truthful and honest, though painful, diagnosis is not designed to destroy us or crush us, but to open our eyes and we thank you that you haven't left us in a lost condition we thank you for the glorious salvation the glorious provision that you have so graciously made thank you for the Lord Jesus thank you for his perfect life for his death in our place Father we pray that you would that you, that you would help us in our hearts to believe this great message of good news. Help us to know peace with you. And whatever our outward circumstances, whatever our feelings, we, we pray that we might know underneath it all that we have your smile upon our lives. Bless us, we pray, by your word. We pray in the good and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.